Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast and without them, I'd have quit long ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy for behind-the-scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. I'd like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And finally, I need to let you know about a new project. Wouldn't it be great to be able to interact with all sorts of folk who are into historical martial arts in one way or another without trolls, ads, algorithms, or Russian sex bots getting in the way? I think so. And so I have spent the last many months creating just such an online community, swordpeople.com. It's built on the Mighty Networks platform, which means we are paying for hosting and the use of their software, servers, and tech support, so we are the customer. We are not handing over our data to be sold to commercial interests, and so there is no incentive for algorithm-driven fear-mongering to maximize time on the platform. It's as pure as social media can be. At the moment, we have four levels of membership. The first is free. This gives you access to the main discussion areas and events and so on. Secondly, we have the Support Sword People for £5 a month. This gives you access to all of the above, plus the satisfaction of helping to support the platform and access to live streams and my train-along sessions. Thirdly, we have Solo Scholars at £20 a month. This gives you access to all of the above, plus all of my online courses that can be done alone. That is solo training, footwork, breathing, meditation, and the Recreate Historical Swordsmanship from Historical Sources course. And finally, we have Mastering the Art of Arms at £40 a month. This gives you access to all of the above, of course, plus all of my online courses, including the Complete Longsword course, the Complete Rapier, Medieval Sword and Buckler, and the new How to Teach course. We will be phasing out the Teachable hosted Mastering the Art of Arms subscription, but don't worry, if you have already bought courses on Teachable, this won't affect them. I am hoping to add premium content from other instructors in the near future. We will also be adding the ability for creators, such as smiths, publishers, and so on, to post their work in a marketplace, so if you're looking for a new sword, new helmet, or new book, you'll know where to go. There will be no paid ads, no paid promotions, nothing like that. This means we will be entirely dependent on the users of the platform to pay for it. So if you're thinking about joining, please consider one of the paid options. You will probably find that there are topics, tags, and so on that you would like added or edited. Let me know what you want and I'll do my best to make it happen. This is for you, so tell me what you want. Please note, there will be teething trouble. This is a first-of-its-kind online community for sword people, and we are new to the Mighty Networks platform. There will be issues that crop up. They will be dealt with as quickly and fairly as possible, but you should expect some technical problems in the beginning. But you should not expect bad behavior. 
The code of conduct is absolute and will be enforced without mercy. The too long didn't read version of that is be nice, be friendly and be fair. Anything that even smells a bit like trolling will result in eviction. So if you think you can behave yourself like a reasonable adult, go to swordpeople.com and click request to join. It's fast, easy and straightforward. Platforms like this are entirely dependent on network effects. It will only work if people come and join it. It has little value to the single user. So be bold and be brave. If everyone like you joins, it will be awesome. You can get Sword People on your phone or any other device by downloading the Mighty Networks app and signing in. If you're opting for one of the paid levels, I would greatly appreciate it if you would join on your computer so we don't have to pay 30% of our revenues to the App Store or Android. So I will see you at swordpeople.com. And now without further ado, let's get on with the interview. I'm here today with Mariana Lopez, who is a historical fencer and coach, founder of Yggdrasil Volker, founder of an instructor at the Canon Academy, and co-founder of Esfingers, the Sphinxes, an international network of female historical fencers. So without further ado, Mariana, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, one little one. I'm currently yeah. founder and main instructor at the Metropolitan Historical Fencing Academy, which is my, ah, my well. current club. The Metropolitan Historical Fencing Academy. Perfect. All right. So, well, seeing as you said it, I don't need to. So we can, <laughs> we can crack on with that. <laughs> All right. Excellent. All right. So let's just start with um, whereabouts in the world are you? I am in the United States right now, but I am originally from Mexico. Okay. Which bit of the States? I am in Virginia. Okay. Now that explains why I met you briefly at the um, Lord Baltimore's Challenge last year. Yes, I am. I am local to that club. We're like 10 minutes apart. Well, not 10 minutes, half an hour, but, you know, it's almost the same. By, by American standards, that is practically next door. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, how did you originally get into historical martial arts? Um, honestly, it was purely by accident. Um, I was on a journey, as you say, to find a martial art that I like. My brother has always been involved with the martial arts, and um, it just sounded really interesting. So, I started tackling with martial arts, but... I'm going to be honest with you, the whole, you know, do a test in front of a bunch of people so you can get from, you know, white belt to the next belt was not my thing. <laughs> yeah, it's not mine either. It's, it's, it's just really nerve-wracking. So I was enjoying it, but it was not really quite my, my cup of tea. And I also, at the time, I used to do reenactment. And at a reenactment fair, there were people doing, um, you know, stage combat. And... I literally just said out loud, I kind of wish this was an actual martial art. And random guy behind me was like, oh, it actually is. Okay. And I was like, oh, really? Turns out this guy had gone for work to the U.S. And he had come across some people in a park training, those people being Arma. Um, and he learned, he thought he thought it was really interesting. So he approached them and he learned about Hema. And particularly, he learned about Fiore. And so... We talked to him and a group of people that were at that uh, reenactment event uh, became very interested. So me, my brother and a group of friends organized a workshop in my hometown and we invited him over to teach. Now you have to understand that all his knowledge of Hema was like visiting these guys for a bit and having access to Fiora and sort of like start dabbling on its right. own. But, so, but in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Correct. And so our workshop was, these are the basic cuts. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> um, I think this is how you hold a sword. And like, it was nothing more than that. But it was actually also interesting because from that quote-unquote workshop, that was also a camping event, because of course it was, um, the very first five HEMA clubs in the entire Mexico started. Wow. And it was all just pure dumb luck. Fantastic. So so it just so happened that the people who came to that event just all sort of separated off and created their own clubs from there. Yeah, because so, we had so people from different parts of, of Mexico that were yeah. there. So, so yeah. So that, that random dude um, is is like the, um, what do you call it, the, the, the catalyst for historical martial arts in Mexico. Pretty much. Um, do you remember his name? Yeah. Uh, his nickname was Og. Uh, he no longer does HEMA. I believe his real name is, oh man, was it Alberto? Something like that. Um, the funny thing is that there was people that knew of HEMA, but it was there was just no connection to it. Right. Um, so as these clubs started creating the people who already knew of HEMA, which for the most part were, um, you know, stage combat actors who had gone to Patacreen and things like that. Right. Sort of like, oh, it's actually becoming a thing. Let's let's join into it. Um, but it is. I would say that it's not that it, there was no knowledge of HEMA before. It's the first time that it was sort of like organized to the point clubs could happen. Right. Um, now, so you were basically there at the birth of historical martial arts in Mexico, right? Which is a very cool thing. To be there, at. and you're involved in starting clubs and and um, making your own gear, uh, developing the prizes and competitions and things like that. Is that correct? Yeah, um, I, I actually did some of. <laughs> I made our swords, which were made out of wood. You made your swords. I made our swords, made out of wood, and okay, it's funny because some people still own some of the swords that I made. Um, <laughs> I also start doing some of the gear that was available, um, mm-hmm. so with leather work, and uh, very fastly that I learned that I did not like that responsibility. I was not responsible for any injuries, but it is mildly nerve-wracking. Um, yeah. To think that if your gear fails, it's going to be on you, so um, that only lasted for as long as it needed to be, because even though there was gear in the U.S., it's just very hard to access. It's better now, but shipping to Mexico is just not the easiest of things sure um but yeah like uh, i would make the gear i would um make the protections and for the rest of that it was mostly like try to experiment with which other type of equipment that it's available can we use to yeah i mean i remember in the early days um in the uk we made a lot of our own stuff and i still have a fencing plaster on somewhere that's made up of bits of carpet covered in leather Oh yeah, we also yeah. went through the carpet stage. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a necessary stage in, in any kind of national adoption of historical martial arts that you go through the making protective gear out of random crap. I also think people era. don't realize the part of like, there is a stage of we're trying, but we have no idea what we're doing. Um, yeah. The first national tournament, and I always laugh at this because it, it, it progressed really quickly, right? The evolution of HEMA in Mexico, it's been really, really fast because we have Europe and the US at a much faster space so we're able to look back and be like, oh we need to we need to move yeah, on. Yeah, so what 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 year was your first event with that chap Ugg? Uh that must have been almost sixteen years ago. So which year was sixteen years ago? <laughs> sixteen years ago oh god, math. Uh, two thousand seven. Yeah, two thousand seven. 
All right. Okay. So by which point, actually, historical martial arts are pretty well established everywhere else. I mean, I started my school in Finland in 2001 and we started our club in Edinburgh in 1994. Correct. So, So, yeah. um, I mean, I remember the first person that I saw online that I started admiring was uh, Teresa Wendland. I cannot pronounce her last name. Teresa Wendland. She used to do, I don't know if she still does, but she used to do a lot of um, mounted combat. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. 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 Um, But no, so what I was going to say is like, it's funny because in our first national tournament, we had bucket helmets and we had the (laughs) same, the same two for everyone. We had uh, armor gantlets. So hang on, so hang on. So, so, so when, when you put on a bucket helmet, um, at the end of your fight, you have to give your bucket helmet to the next person who's going to put the bucket you've just sweated into on their head. Yes. That is disgusting. See, see the nice thing is that I'm really small, so I would not touch the bucket helmet because it would rest on my shoulders because it was too big right. for me. On the downside, I could only see the feet and the top of the head of my opponent because I was completely blinded. <laughs> <laughs> um and then we would use we would use uh, metal gauntlets, same one for everyone. So of course my hands were gigantic, yeah. and this is where it gets a little bit. Um, I don't know what the, the 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 if if I need to keep vocabulary PG thirteen, but this is what we're working no, 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 no. on. On 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 my show, you can say whatever the fuck you like. All right, so this is when we were just fucking stupid because <laughs> we were young. And we thought, well, not all of them were young, but we thought that using mail was protection enough against wooden swords. Oh, I have a a finger that got broken through a mail gauntlet. I learned that the same way you did. But we used, so so (laughs) here we are with like giant metal gauntlets, a bucket and a mail that it's too big for me and too small for some other people. Hitting each other with wooden swords. How did we not broke a rib? I have no idea. (laughs) <laughs> but there is a picture of me blinded walking towards the sort of a guy hitting me right at the mouth of the stomach and just completely bending and falling on the floor. That was my very first <laughs> open tournament match and the last open tournament match that I did. Um, <laughs> so my first my first tournament was not great. Um, then we also had like a soft combat edition in which we had um, essentially plastic tubes covered, wrapped up in, in essentially foam and yep. and duct tape and so that was like our soft combat version um and we would do those two for the first year and then by the second year we had chin ice and by the third year we had i think it was by then that the, the rawlings were out uh the plastic ones the yeah. plastic ones yeah so we at least progressed from our stupidity relatively fast <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's it's not it's not stupidity. It's it's innocence. Doing it, it's, yeah, it's, and it's and it's it's also it's determination to do it regardless of limitations. Yes, that absolutely is true. And without that, without that spirit behind it, none of this would ever have happened. Because you know, it was probably close on twenty years after I started historical martial arts before you could just buy a sword that was fit for historical martial arts. You didn't have to order it specially from somewhere. Yeah, and twenty years it took. And if we, if we, if I've been waiting for people to start making swords that people could just go and buy, I would never have started anything. So you, you've got to just get started, regardless of limitations. I think the funny thing is that a lot of things I've realized that they they sort of like stay. Like when you talk to people that started HEMA very early on in Europe or in the US, they have these conversations about how some of the knowledge was almost like a black market situation. 
it was the same for us. Um, even with swords, I remember there's there's this armor guy who is really good with armor and he will do swords, but his quality control is very iffy and his pricing is really rough. So yeah. there was this black market knowledge that you had to get him drunk when you made him to agree to make a sword for you because then he will lower his prices and he would <laughs> he would stay by his words. So everyone, you know, that knew the secret knew to get him drunk first, but you didn't want to spread that information much because then he would catch on that the knowledge is out there. <laughs> and just ridiculous things like that, right? Um, yeah. Our first... There's up to now, there's not really any sources that are translated to Spanish except the ones that Arma translated. And uh, yeah. while I appreciate armor for that to an extent, the translations aren't great. No, um, they're very much not. The translation of the translation of the translation, uh, which definitely also led to some funk in, in how Hema was being understood, you know. Um, it is very funny to come back from that and then have a decent level of English and have like a first generation translation and be like, oh, that's what he was talking about. <laughs> Yeah. Now, um, in our email exchange, sort of building up to this, um, you said something about you get asked questions about Hema Mexico. Um, it's always about the differences and the struggles in inverted commas, which you think is a bit of a waste. And wanting to understand historical martial arts outside of Europe and the USA, so it would be cool to talk about Hema Mexico in a different scope. So, um, what question should I be asking you to get? The story you want to tell about historical martial arts in Mexico. Oof, I, I shut myself in the foot with that one, didn't I? <laughs> well, no, no. The thing, the thing is, um, it's, I, I've done, like, this is going to be an episode about 149 or something. So I've done quite a lot of these these interviews, but uh, I have no training as a journalist or an interviewer or anything like that. And if you listen to, like, some of the very early episodes of the show, my interviewing style is not as polished as perhaps it has become. But still, I'm always um, a really good interviewer knows the right questions to ask, right? And most guests don't know the right questions to ask. But I got a very clear sense that you had a feeling about what you wanted to talk about. And it's my job just to find that right question that will kind of unlock this so, this window into historical martial arts in Mexico. I think I have. So let's just one. pretend I've asked. Yeah, let's just pretend I've asked the question. You go ahead and ask. So, so I think I think I have the question. Would it be? Oh, okay. What is it that Hema Mexico has to teach Hema outside of? Oh, that is a lovely question. Because, All right, Mariana. Yeah, Mariana. What is it that Hema Mexico has to teach us outside Mexico? Go I, ahead. I love that you asked that because the assumption is that we always have to learn from others. Um, Something that it's a I've rather liked. colonial attitude, isn't it? It is, absolutely. <laughs> um, so something that I would that I wish people understood about Hema in Mexico is, first of all, that historically Hema also happened in Mexico, right? Um, some of the sources were written in, in, in the New Spain. Um, the stress sources okay. were written in the New Spain. I believe one of our presidents was thoroughly involved in saber fencing, and... It is, it is something that got developed there. That is on the historical side. On the practical side, um, <laughs> looking at Europe and looking at, uh, at the US, we've been running a national tournament for years now. And okay. it comes with humps and it comes with, with issues and it's not perfect and growth is hard and whatever you want to say. But the fact that we've been able to have a solid communication within groups for a long time it's something that I've noticed a lot of 
other sides of the pond struggle with. Yeah. Um, and the way that we are able to sort of like find a common ground and try to find a way to remove egos from the practice. Um, it's not perfect again, and for some things it's not getting... It's, it's, it's evolving a little bit differently. I think we have learned a couple of bad habits from the U.S., unfortunately, but... Okay, how? Could you specify? So I feel like the U.S. has these very... But like all America, they're very us individuals, our, our mentalities and our personal growth. And there's a lack of... They understand community, but not quite the same as, as we do in Mexico. It's, it's cultural. That's the only way that I have right. to explain it. Um, with us, you will have clubs that don't really love each other much, but we will still transfer the national tournament to the... So each year, the national tournament is run by a different club. You okay. essentially compete for it. You send a proposal. You say, this is the space that I have. This is the people that I have to run it. This is how I plan to run the... the you know the tournament, the things that I'm, the changes that I propose for the for the rule set, and it gets reviewed, and whoever champion gets it, they run it for the year, and you're not allowed to run it for two years in a row, and that okay. means that even if someone, it's a club that you don't get along much, you're still gonna pass that tournament to that person, and you're still gonna show, and you're still gonna fight, and we're able to sort of like remove some of that um, egos of like my hema is on the right way, and yours is not. And, and be able to pass that along. Well, if you look That's at fascinating. yeah, well, and meanwhile, if you look at at Hema in the U.S., um, ask me the chances for them to be able to run a national event anyway, anytime soon okay. with agreement of all the <laughs> all the clubs. Uh, right, it's okay. Not going to happen. Uh, uh, all right, okay. But to be strictly fair, to historical martial arts in the United States, it it started out in a few centers very very far apart. That's true. And the country is a lot bigger, and there are hundreds upon hundreds of clubs. So it's the situation isn't quite the same, but the situation is analogous to uh, Britain, for instance, where we have absolutely no such um, kind of national level organization. Well, there is the British um, Historical Sword Play Association, I think it's called, which I actually helped to found in about 1998 or 99, I think. Um, and that still exists and it has some, you know, it's basically like an alliance of clubs. But there isn't really any kind of national level events and tournaments and that kind of stuff, as far as I'm aware. So, it, I think I think it's fairer to say um, the situation in Britain is not nearly as as uh, collegial as the one in Mexico. Yeah. That's a fair. I think I, I think you're right, but I think let's let's make it a slightly fairer comparison. Yeah, otherwise, I mean, that's people true. listening are going to get yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get that. Um, but I think I think part of it is just sort of like the the there was a lot of transparency on it. I don't know. I think I think that's something that I like. The other thing that I just like is the and no, that is definitely not a fair comparison. But I think people need to look at it. Is when you have a place where like if you if you look at Mexico, people will tell me it's like Hima doesn't make any sense in Me in Mexico, right? In a way, like it really? doesn't. In the sense of like, it's just so much work to make it work, right? So much work to get the sources, so much to get the gear, so much, it's so much work to get like the 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 sources and find the one person that will have the English issues. I mean, sure, we have bilingual people, but, but we all know we all know the English of the sources can be a little bit interesting. Um, yeah. And so I don't know. I feel I feel like there's a lot of strength in in the practice and in the commitment and like the level of passion. Like if you go to a to a Mexican tournament. It's almost like you're going to Lucha Libre, in which the public 
who has no idea what's going on, is just screaming and invested and like yelling and like cheering and it's it's the utmost fabulous experience you've ever had is you feel like a rock star when you're fencing there. Um, and it is quite not the same here. You have cheering okay. teams and you have people screaming, but it's not, the public doesn't get involved in the same way. I don't know, it's weird. But I think to me it's like, I just have a frustration that when we talked about Mexico and when we talk about countries that are not, you know, your primary go-to yeah. there's always a, a feeling of like oh there's struggles rather than hey look they are they're actually good at it and 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 they have good fencers and and they have people who are committed to understanding sources there's people who do research right i think yeah. a lot of the research made by people who are not in the u.s or europe gets overlooked and understandably so it's hard to reach but that's kind of like part of it too is like is it hard to reach because i have a hard time putting it out there and or because we're also not looked at. And I think it's a combination of both. It's also a language issue. Like most people who are brought up speaking English simply cannot read research done in Spanish or French or German or Polish or any other language you care to name, right? We're, we are a very monolingual culture, really. I would um, argue on that one because if you think about it, the number of people that I've met that have decided to learn Spanish in order to be able to read the stressa better is not small. Sure, but and that's that's one. That's but learning to learning to read historical uh, learning to read a language so that you can study original sources in that language is a different thing from being able to pick up a modern article about some source in some language and be able to just read it. I would argue that it's easier to read the article than the sources. <laughs> well, okay, but okay, speaking from my own experience, um, my Italian, my spoken Italian was quite good about five or six years ago. Uh, it's gotten a lot rustier since, but um, I have no problem reading Fiore in the original language. And back you know, five, six years ago, I had no problem sitting in the back of Andrea Conti's car ch um, discussing Valley with three Italians in Italian. Right, no problem. Um, but reading a modern article written in Italian is much harder for me. That's fair. Um, that, that is actually fair. The other thing that I guess I wish I liked to be asked is like, do you think it's worth it to look not just in Mexico but at South America? And I want to bring up light to some things that again I understand why language wise they're not out there, but I mm -hmm. think it's very interesting. Um, Tomas Armero, who's actually fairly known in Europe because he went to do some some training trip in Europe for a while. He... Thomas Suazo? Yes. Yeah, yeah, he's been on the show. Um, he, he, he stayed in my cell for six months. Uh, well, uh, so he has, I don't know if he talked to you about it, but him and other people in South America, because South America is, is not small, and yet they have managed to get HEMA clubs from different countries to gather up once a year, uh, to do training and fencing and tournaments and the fact that they have been able to gather it's almost by this point i wish they could bring the us and canada because they have the, the the ability to run a pan-american hema event wow and you know they have at least four to five different countries showing up all together they're not small flights they're 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 not little commitments right it's not like you just yeah, sure. jump the border and they're being able to achieve that and I, I just think that that's really cool and it speaks as of the the interest and the willingness to get to learn from each other. Right. Um, even in the US, people have a hard time leaving their own coast for events. Very East true. Coast is East Coast, West Coast is West Coast. 
the the people in south and south in and the middle yeah south and south in the middle is the middle and yeah and you have your very specific clubs and your very specific folk who are willing to go mm. out of that little box but it's almost always the same people right? yeah very true um europe i think has a better culture of living I, understandably so europe also has very easier travel um but even then sometimes i feel like europe remains contained within Europe. Yeah, and, and Germany remains contained within Germany and France within France and what I mean I, I go to Germany I guess an average of maybe one and a half times a year and it's really unusual for somebody outside Germany to come to that seminar. Yeah. Right. Whereas whereas when I my first seminar in Singapore, somebody flew down from Tokyo for it. And that is a very long way. Yes, and it's and it's and it's kind of like that. And, and then to be fair, like in Mexico, it's kind of the same because you have people in Monterrey, right? And if you go driving from Monterrey to my hometown, which is in the middle of it, it's seventeen hours drives. Wow, and people, and, that, that's and that's people, continental travel. And people will do that for a national tournament, right? Yeah. Now, preferably they will fly, but it's still it's still a commitment, and and that is something that I do wish. Okay, so happened with you live passion. in America. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, okay. You live in America. Um, in in the United States, um, and you have the you know, you're Mexican. You lived in Mexico for uh, the first part of your life, and so you're f- really familiar with both cultures and really familiar with both historical martial arts cultures. What do you think makes the difference between a culture where I'll drive 17 hours to get to a tournamenty thing so I can fence people who live from other who come from different places and have different styles and whatnot. What what makes that willingness, which you find in Mexico, but you don't find in the States? Oh, the answer is going to sound really mean. Go on then. And it is the the sense that there's something out there to learn. Oh, oh I like you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to get roasted for this one. Oh, no, that's okay. I'll defend you all the way because it's, it's true. It's, yeah, it's, it's what you just said rings absolutely true why should i go eight hours to this event when there was the chances of me learning anything i couldn't get at home yeah i think that's it yeah i i really think it resumes to that although although it, it that's not usually conscious i think i think what's i don't really think it is no I agree, I agree with you i really don't think it is and i think it's it's one of those things in which like you have such large communities within uh, within your area that it also it's easy to fall in that. Like I have four clubs near sure. me in here yeah. and then Mexico was the only club in my entire states for. Right. It's okay. So my um, experience of talking to Americans about this sort of thing, they always bring up things like they don't get enough holiday time. And if it takes a day to get there and a day to get back, they're basically having to miss two days of work, which so um, is the employment situation similar in Mexico or is it more like Europe where you can take lots of time off and don't get fired? No, it's, it's much, much similar to, to the American, to the American holidays. Um, okay. So we can, so we can call bullshit on that excuse, can we? <laughs> I mean, I think, I think you get to pick, you get to pick your, your, your battles, right? Like you have sure. six holidays, take three for you, three for Hima. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I would, I would, I would, I would say so, a little bit. Huh. Okay. I'm gonna get so roasted. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, I'm honestly, it's it's probably a good discussion to be having because it's I've noticed it over the last. I mean, I've been going to the states for 
you know, teaching events and whatnot for 22 years now. My first one was in 2001. And I have noticed how the events have gotten more and more local over the 20 years. Because like even 15 years ago, it was normal for people to come to events who have flown across the country for it or come in from other countries for it. That was normal. And now it does tend to be all a lot more local. So... Yeah, I don't think that's bad per se. As long so, as long as it is sort of like a regroup and regrow. Yeah, but that's not that's not what's happening, is it? It's more like it's more like a siloing. Yeah, it's becoming more isolating. That is true. Yeah. Um, okay. Slight change attack. All right. Um, you're, we could always come back to anything that you think you haven't like fully expressed yourself on, but let's let's leave let's let's go on to a slightly more contentious topic, <laughs> so oh, you can get okay. even more roasted. All right. All right. So. <laughs> You are probably best known for being a co-founder of S-Fingers. Yes. So uh, we've had Fran LaQuarta on the show very early on. She was one of the first people I invited. Um, and so we have sort of some of the background, but could you just recap what the problem was, what S-Fingers set out to solve and how it's gone? So Asiga started in Mexico again. Um, okay. And I don't think Fran has this side of the story because Fran arrived later on. I, there was very few women, very, very few women. And I was in the, in the, uh, the boys club. I would, I would say that there's been a lot of growth in myself and how I perceive myself and others. And there was this one girl from another state who was also the only girl in her club. And by that point, I was a quote unquote cool kid who knew everyone because of course. And so she came over with me and she was like, I'm so annoyed I'll be the only girl and we should do a Facebook group where we you know, gather all the women in, in Hima, mm-hmm. Mexico, so we can have some sort of, you know, sense of community. And I looked at her, and my first thought was like, that is the stupidest thing I ever heard of. <laughs> it, okay. was, it was my very first thought. Flash forward two months afterwards, I went to, I went to my very first Hima event in the United States. And in my brain, is like, I am going to the developed Hima world where everything is different and everything is elevated and everything is fantastic. And I show yeah. up, and in a group of 60-something people, this was one of the largest events at the time, there were four women. Wow. And he punched me on the face. It would. And it is hilarious because I could probably still find that, that text in Facebook. I messaged her back and I was like, I agree to what you want me to do as long as it's international. Okay. And she was like, all right. <laughs> so it started as a little humble like Facebook page. I mean, Facebook mm-hmm. group, and I added every girl that I knew, and I gathered the four women that I met in the U.S., and then I had two people that I was like, send me any any women that you know of, because um, I got to know one European guy who shall not be named, and uh, and he contacted me. Why shall he be named? Because <laughs> I don't like him. Um, okay, fair. And I don't want to, oh, I don't want to give him the, the credit. No, it was Axel Pedersen. Uh, I met him oh, at, okay. yes. Axel Pedersen okay. is the one that gave me contact with Fran. And right, okay. So, <laughs> so in which case, in which case, Axel has actually done one good thing in his life. That is true. Nice he has thing. done one good true. thing in his life. Um, <laughs> so I contact Axel Pedersen, and I also contact uh, Ken Dieterker, who I met somewhere else. So they, they start sending me, like, the few women that they met. And so Fran immediately became the, the, the focal point for all Europe. Sure. Because I'm not in Europe. So, and then she started gathering people from Europe. I gather people from Mexico and then people from the U.S. And that's sort of how 
that's essentially how it started. And it's one of those things in which you're sort of in the Facebook group, and boy, was there drama, because everyone wanted to know what was happening inside. Oh. The people were freaking out. Um, oh, so hang on, so hang on. So all the boys wanted to know what was going on inside the girls' clubhouse. Oh, absolutely. We had <laughs> we had <laughs> offers of like, oh, you know, we have we have this forum that it is very famous and well known in Hema, and uh, we want to offer you having your private discussions in a private forum there, which obviously means that all the administrators can see it. Right. And I'm like, are you offering this out of kindness or out of needing to see what's going on the inside? Um, right. I got flooded with messages of like, how I think what you're doing, it's well intended, but it's doing the wrong thing. How do I know that you're not speaking ill of me? You know, like, it was... Uh, uh, but, but, but hang on, but hang on, hang on, <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. What fucking business is it of anybody what you're saying to your friends? You would be surprised. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I don't suppose you ever do talk about me behind my back and S fingers. No, and, and, so, and so, I don't. I don't care if you do. It's fine. You carry on. So you and, want. <laughs> and here's the thing, though. We had like anything, right? We. It's one of those things in which I. I had no idea what we're, I was getting into. My friend yeah. had no idea what she was getting into. Like, I don't even think Fran was, had any idea what we were getting into. And to be honest, the, the backlash was, was mentally taking. I could, I could confidently say that all the bullying that we had for the first two to three years essentially changed yeah. me as a human being. Okay, in, in what way? For, well, I am far more feminist now. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> um, Good. You know, like the I was one of those people of like, oh, he might's perfect, and we're so, you know, everything is inclusive. There's, there's no, there's no, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with our activity. We're so small niche that we that we get to pe- build this this little perfect utopia, and all of a sudden it's like, no, that's not true. Yeah, and and it's okay. People often don't understand that absolute equality is not egalitarian at all. Yes. And the other thing is like, I think I think part of it is just a sense of like, we need to start accepting that culture and society will, will, will I don't know how the, the English word is, permeate, like touch, like it will, it will get mm-hmm. involved in how you run things. Like I cannot detach sure. being Mexico, being Mexican from my existence as an instructor, right? Clubs in, in Mexico that were misogyny is like rampant. Uh, they imagine yeah, they're I, not gonna suddenly stop having you know I, I internalized misogyny. I, I just did not yeah. randomly got rid of my internalized misogyny out of. Sure, I, I grew I grew up in Peru partly, and so from eighty six to ninety two I lived in Peru, and I think the culture in Peru is not too dissimilar to the culture in Mexico. And I mean, yeah, I I've seen extraordinary things. Absolutely extraordinary things. Like, for instance, uh, we were staying in Lima and a, a woman was driving me and my sister and we were going to a cockfight, I think it was, uh, with a bunch of Peruvian friends. And the guy who was driving the other car did not know where we were going. Um, but Lisa, who was driving the car I was in, knew where we were going and she knew the way. But the guy behind could not follow a woman <laughs> in a car. Of course. And... and, and actually had to drive with the nose of his car slightly ahead of the nose of hers so that we were driving along the street abreast instead of in line as you're supposed to he was constantly half overtaking her so that he didn't have to be behind her car 
Of course. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, and that is and that is a great definition. And so like and so here's the thing, like one of the things that happened is like of course drama happened and there was a you know, mm-hmm. incidents and we've had to build rules and things as we go, like Sure. Because the first time that we had an issue, everyone jumped in, it's like we told you. We told you your project right. was broken. You pro- we told you that he was going to be wrong. And I'm like, listen, I'm, I'm trying to do my best. But, like, I'm not exa- exaggerating. Like, it moved from getting people, like... I'm going to sound really melodramatic, and I apologize. But being That's fully okay. honest, I've gotten um, threats of, like, if you don't do this, you will, you will, you know, I'm going to ruin your human career. You need to listen to me. Or, or I'm gonna ruin all that you've built with those fingers. That was that was uh, that was a fun one. I've gotten okay. the. Uh, How is this coming from women or men? No, that one was a guy. Uh, that sounds unsurprising. Okay. Yeah, uh, I've gotten the. Oh, you know what you're trying to do is nice and noble, but you're you're ultimately hurting hurting our society. Or also, like you are you are causing a problem. Like you're not helping women you are actually causing a problem because you're isolating them so you are the real reason there's reap between you know yeah them and us and we for a long time would spend hours banning comments from rude to you know just denigrating comments that will happen on 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 his uh that when we open the the open page and maybe no, on, sorry, sorry. What what is the open page? Uh, the Facebook page uh, is uh, of Esfinkis, in which we have memes okay. and posts like that. Um, it's a little bit yeah. dead right now because COVID took a lot of power from us. But um, but it's one of those things in which we'll post the picture, and it was not just Hema people; it was just in so, general. So is, was that was that open for men to post on? Um, they can post in the comments. Yeah. So we oh, have okay. we have our, our closed private forum, and then we have our open yeah. page, and then we have our website, uh, right. and then and technically we have Instagram and other things. We had to close our Tumblr because a white supremacist group was taking our pictures and posting them on theirs. Uh, ah. Yeah, it's there's 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 a lot of things that people don't really don't realize. Um, I think one of the most nerve wracking things that I've ever had to do because of this thing is, and I'm not gonna name any names, but I had. A person from uh, text me and let me know that their instructor was essentially uh, harassing them and you know knocking at their door because they refused to date them and I had to essentially encourage her to go to the police. Oh my god! Um, that has happened at least two times in which the only thing that I can do is like you know go to the police and I will be texting you the entire time. Yeah. Like if you need okay, support, no. I'm going to be in your fo- but but I I cannot do anything else for you. Like this is this is this is beyond the scope yeah. of of my abilities. Like what do I do? Can I make a post? Like don't make a post. Go to the police. It's like just yeah. just, just go to the police. <laughs> like make <laughs> yes. a restriction order and 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 so that I I I see this like some of the obscure stuff that people have no idea. It just mm. no idea that happens. Um and I know that we just went far away from, from how it started, but I guess it just goes to speak of like how it has evolved. And also how it is necessary. Yes, because I'm going to say another story. The, the, the girl who started to speak his with me, mm-hmm. her parents were very adamant that, that Hema was not for women. Okay. To the point that the reason she stopped practicing Hema was because her parents were like, if you stop doing Hema... And join something more feminine like belly dance. We'll get you a new car and we'll pay your your master's degree. Bloody hell! 
And she was like, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, fair. I as mean, soon as she's got that master's degree and, then, and, and is driving around in her new car, she can pick up swords again. I mean, I love it because she actually did a master's in sports psychology. So um, fantastic. she's now helping athletes. But it's just one of those things in which is like, when I saw that, it's like, there's, there's, this is, I don't know if I'm, I'm saving the world, but if I can help like at least one girl to not feel inadequate by liking what they like, I call it a day. Like that's that's yeah. that's all I care about. That's, at that's a success, isn't it? Yeah, like right. It's a tiny thing, but I, I do think it it does a lot. Okay, um, actually, we can cut this out if if it goes nowhere useful. But I have recently at the time we're talking, it's not launched yet. But by the time this goes out, it'll be launched. I've created a sort of Facebook alternative online sort of community forum for sword people. It's called swordpeople.com, right? And I, was, I actually have a note here on my on my questions list to ask you whether you would like to have a look at it and see whether it's possible to create an S-Fingers subgroup on that platform. Because I would like there to be a sort of safe space for women to talk about whatever they want to talk about without the blokes looking over their shoulders. Interested? <laughs> I was going to make a terrible joke and be like, so guy, what you're saying is that you want to be able to see. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would. Uh, I really think we actually need to start getting out of out of Facebook. And not out, well, but but expand it because... Um, yeah, Facebook is a dumpster fire. No, it's not that. It's like Facebook is generational. Ah, that's so it. Okay. we we have a Discord now, and then we have people who have Discord that don't have Facebook. So now all of a sudden, I'm able to reach those those people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was kind of like the same with Instagram. So we need to make like the goal is to have platforms where I can reach you know women and non-binary people, and not and not just Facebook women and non-binary people. So yeah, yeah. the answer Excellent. will be okay. Yes. Brilliant. Okay, and I'll we'll have to figure out on the back end of it how to. How to create it so that because of course I own that platform. Yeah. Um, uh, it's I I pay for the hosting of it on a system called Mighty Networks, so it's like I'm I'm building it myself. Um, so it's going to be tricky adjusting the permissions so that the owner <laughs> can't see what's going on. But I think I think we'll probably come up with something. Alrighty. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Um, brilliant. Okay. So, um, is there anything you want to add on the? Women belonging in historical martial arts topic. Just that they're fabulous, and that they're 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 inspirational, and that I I really think that, and and I'm I can be it's it's ironical that I said this. I think I think that sometimes in the caught up sense of like you know this is something that needs fixing. But sure, um, people don't spend time looking at how many talented HEMA women there out there. Um, right. We get stuck with the same. Like the, let me let me change this. A Hema white cisgender guy has a very easy way to start something and all of a sudden become very known and very praised and and very get a lot of attention. Um, I would argue that it's not the same journey for women, and I think it's worth to like stop and look at the women around you and your human community and see like who in here has been working for years and maybe doesn't feel like they deserve or they want to put the effort to like get in the front stage that has everything it takes to be on that front stage. Well, Mariana, I am trying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that thing is just like to put that out there for everyone, right? 
Yeah, but like, like you know, half of the guests <laughs> on this show are women. I know, and that's why I love that. And 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 it takes it takes people mm. like you to 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 set an example that it is not impossible, right? Because that's something that I hear a lot. It's like, oh, it's really hard. It's like, no, it's not hard. It takes work, but it's not. But honestly, but it's doable. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you, the hardest thing about running this show, honestly, is finding the women. Right? Two reasons. Firstly, because historical martial arts does have a lot more men in it than yes. it does women. That's just a fact. So there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of men who absolutely have done, shall we say, sufficient interesting work that having them on the show is a no-brainer, right? But there are fewer women in in that, you know, who are in who have been doing this kind of work for long enough to sort of you know get noticed. But also, and more critically, I have received I don't know how many pitches to come on the show from men. I have had a total of one pitch from one woman. I was going to say, actually, that, that you're, you're right where I was going to say it's like the other issue is that women feel either underserving mm -hmm. or, or they're just because we are taught not to speak. We're taught not to fight for it. We're taught to tip to corner and we're also a lot more self-critic. So you will find a lot of women who feel like they are not uh, capable enough or knowledgeable enough or smart enough or good enough or enough enough. Um, so I think that's another big challenge is like women really, uh, make a disservice to their work, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, and it's not a problem that, um, men seem to have to nearly the same degree. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> they never do. Um, okay. Yeah. So, okay. To women listening, pitch me, even, even if you think it would be a bad idea, pitch me anyway, and we'll see. I, love it. I mean, I've, I've, I've had... Yeah, you know, women on the show who've been training for less than a year. I love it. So everyone has something yeah. to, to teach. So yes, I love that. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So on a slight sort of sidestep, um, I need to talk to you about tournaments. Ooh, um, okay. And let, let me just, let me just put this into context. The only time I think that we've ever met in person was very briefly when I was running, uh, pools in, so I was the ring director in, the tournament at Lord Baltimore's Challenge, okay? And it was very apparent that my attitude towards tournaments and my <laughs> attitude towards being the ring director in a tournament was completely different to yours, okay? Yeah. Uh, right? Okay. So my approach was, and I, I told all the fighters this before we started, that my interest is in making sure they get the maximum amount of fencing done in the minimum amount of time. So zero dicking about, zero time spent fiddling about. If the hit isn't clear, I'll throw it out. Yeah. They have to do it again. And they also must assume that I, as their ring director, am drunk, blind, and biased against them. And so they have to sell me their hits, right? Because I have no I have no particular interest in spending five minutes deconstructing exactly what happened so that the right person can get credited with the hit if there's yeah. any doubt. Because to my mind, if you're fighting with sharp swords, there is no doubt. And if you fence in such a way that you allow your opponent's sword to become dangerous to you, then you've made a mistake and you don't deserve to get a hit anyway. Yeah. Right? Now, this is completely different to the way a proper, shall we say, sporting tournament with prizes should be run, where you absolutely have to make sure that the people who are legally entitled to the hit get the hit, right? But I don't think historical martial arts are there yet as as a thing. And my brief from David 
David Biggs, the organiser, wasn't, you need to make sure that everyone who deserves a point gets one. It was, we have a shitload of tournaments and rings and pools and stuff to get through. So, Guy, just please get it done. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, there was no... Dis- you, you noticed, I mean, I remember at one point, um, I think it was in the finals pool or whatever, you, you, you came up and asked me about something and I just basically ignored you, told you to go away because I was busy getting on with the next fight or whatever. And somebody came up and asked me, you know, um, uh, Marion has got a... I was like, look, I just don't have time. We have too much fencing to do. I don't care about one particular hit or the other. And, you know, blunt, drunk, blind, biased against you. Pff, I don't care. Let's get the next hit done. <laughs> so, so, all right. So now that, now that I've, ex- I've explained where I'm coming from, from a ring directing point of view, maximum fencing minimum time and it should be said i got through two entire pools before either one of the other ring directors got through one yeah so my approach gets maximum fencing in minimum time um and also david asked me actually guy do you think next year you could run a little thing for the ring directors to get them to speed the fuck up (laughs) (laughs) oh boy yeah slow rings are the worst (laughs) yeah um so anyway so um so my view for tournaments is great place to go to practice. The actual results don't particularly matter because what the what tournaments really offer is the opportunity to fence lots of different people who come from different backgrounds um, under a relatively high pressure situation. So yeah. they have extreme utility for offensive training, but to my mind, they are never the actual point. Where do you come from? I come from cheerleading, uh, which should tell you a lot. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I mean, yes and no. The, the way that I see it is, I, I see it in several stages, right? The, the first and foremost, and the one that I have the most interest in, is the ability to perform under pressure. Yeah. Um, you know, adrenaline, it's actually very interesting. This is something that Jake Norwood pointed out to me, and I did not believe him until I went to some uh, trauma, to say the least, and I realized he was right. Adrenaline feels the same regardless of the situation. Um, yes. So the adrenaline of being in a tournament feels the same as the adrenaline on being on a uh, roller coaster, and it feels the same as the adrenaline on you know being in an unpleasant scenario. So yeah. well, I don't like the the real fight TM conversations of like yeah, yes. in real life. Uh, and you're Macho gonna... bullshit posturing. Yes. And, and okay, can I just interject there? <laughs> yes. Right. Many of my friends are ex-soldiers or other military who have actual combat experience, right? And not one of them ever says anything about real fight, ever. Yeah, no, to me, that's a real red flag every time. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, I mean, I guess I'm going to go off of the branches on this one, but that is something that caused a lot of fuss in the tournament that we just run because the way okay. that we consider points are it has to be intentional, yeah. But if it's really lightly done by a hundred percent intent, that means that if meaning I could have hit this harder, but I don't have to. To me, that is completely yeah. martial about, and that's exactly what I want, right? It shows yes, your your level and your capacity as a fencer. So the way that I see it is all these techniques that I've trained and all these fancy moves that I've learned. Can I perform them under stress? Yeah. Um, and can I perform them under pressure? And so that's kind of like my first main goal. So even if you're not there, you know, for the medals and the wins and the champions is, can I perform this um, 
fancy moves, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Uh, do they make sense? The next level um, that I have is I love I love the 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 martial. I mean, I guess it's a weird conversation, but like I love the quote unquote martial aspect of Hima. That's always going to be one mm-hmm. of my favorite things. My favorite weapon is not even doable in a tournament. Um, what is your favorite weapon? <laughs> the one that has the least space in a manual, which is sickle. Sickle. I love it. It's the, the most, oh, the most yeah. beautiful 13 pages or 14 pages, I think it is. It's the most beautiful 14 pages I've ever seen in my life. And I'm sad that there's no more, but I love it. Um, you know, you do know that there's plenty of sickle material if you look outside Europe, right? I know, but I don't know where to go. Okay. But if you guide me, I'll be very happy. Um, yeah, I, uh, most of it isn't in text form, but um, I have, for example... Uh, here where I live in Ipswich, there's these excellent uh, jiu-jitsu guys who do all sorts of traditional Japanese martial arts, and some of that involves sickle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have all sorts of cool stuff there. With the Japanese one, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar. The, uh, I think Tangsudo has some, some sickle stuff, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Um, but, um, but the next thing that I like is the concept of performance. Ah, uh, okay. So yeah. the reason why I get really... I get stingy with certain tournament things is because I think a, tr- a, a well-done tournament should have space for both people who are doing recreationally and people who are doing it with the desire to perform, um, mm-hmm. perform martially and perform, what would be the phrase, like athletic uh, Athleticism? Yeah. Feats of athleticism? Yeah. Okay. So, um, because if you see... You know, we have fencers out there who are like best of the best, who will do some crazy beautiful moves that your average fencer struggles with on the everyday, mm-hmm. right? Um, Jason Barron's Artofama uh, are the first ones that come to mind because they just had a beautiful match uh, this past weekend. Um, like, there is the ability to do all these cool things from the sources at a very high-stress, high-speed powerful scenario so the way the way that i see it is like i want to be able to build an environment where if you want to perform and your desire is to practice to perform you're able to do that um and in order to do that you do have to have a more oh i'm gonna cringe at the words because i don't i don't want it to sound wrong because i'm not saying you you i don't want it to sound like you're not professional because you're a professional i love art so much for it but it's like like at a very high professional tm type of way yeah does that make sense yeah no, absolutely, and and I have on this show, I have I have lamented the lack of professionalism in historical martial arts tournaments. I wish they would up their game. Yeah, and that's kind of like where we, what I what I would like to see, right? And what I'm striving for. And I understand that it's not for everyone, but that's also why I love that there's local tournaments, is because you have options, right? Yeah. If I want to have a more chill time, I go here. If I want to do this other experience, I go there. If I want to have like big performance I go here and here's the other things I don't think people think that professionalism takes from the social experience and it takes from camaraderie and it takes from making friends and I strongly disagree with that well it can do it just doesn't have to yes that's my whole point it's like it will if you make it so but if, if you keep the culture healthy it shouldn't um, and if anything I feel I feel like quote-unquote strictly run stuff allows to a lot of um, personal bias to go out of the window, which is much easier to have a good relationship with your fellow fencers at the end of the day, right? Okay, um, yeah, sure. If I'm very competitive and I go to a tournament and I'm fencing this one guy that I don't know, 
and my match was run fair and square and I lost, it is very easy for me to go back and then be friends with that guy who just legitimately beat me. If yeah. I have a tournament that is kind of like, and then the guy that is refing me is from the same club that the guy that just beat me, I might have yeah. some like awkward feelings and like they're obviously biased. And do I want to be friends yeah. with you? I probably don't. And it, it, it leads to a less, mm -hmm. you know, less healthy approach. Um, in my very, you know, wild opinion. Um, but yeah, I just, I just think it's one of those things in which we have a pretty well established sort of like environment for for the um scholar stuff i feel yeah i feel like we have a very good environment set up for community building which is like the you know your your smaller local events your workshops i think that we have a very good established thing for social things like dijon comes to mind which is very well known for having a lot of like big getting together making friends sort of like things And I think that there is also room for the make it big and professional and, and, and very highly competitive. So I just feel like that's, that's, that's a niche that is, that is still available to work on. Okay. And I yeah. like to tackle I, on it, if that makes sense. Sure. I mean, like one thing I noticed, um, I think you were the only person at Lord Baltimore's Challenge who was acting as a ring coach. So you were there with, it was David, wasn't it? Yes. You were with, yeah. Um, And so like in between, in between hits or whatever, you would like encourage him with some coaching, coaching thing. I don't know. I, obviously I wasn't listening to your conversations. So I don't know what you were saying, but, um, and that's, that's the sort of thing that you see at a boxing match or an MMA match or something like that, a kind of high level combat sport thing. Professional sport fences pretty much do the same thing. Yeah. Um, but you were the only person there who I saw doing that, which means that that, That aspect of coach, of uh, tournament culture um, is clearly not widespread in historical martial arts. Or is it? Or am I just going to the wrong No, event? I would say that it's not. It's funny. I, I tried to run a workshop on coaching uh, this weekend and I had one person come in. <laughs> so it was a little bit sad. Um, I also think so. And again, I think that's part of like the conversation, right? I have, I'm going to get a little dark here, experiencing HEMA as a woman in Mexico mm -hmm. and experiencing life as a woman who grew up in, in a strongly misogynistic culture. Um, it has led to like what people don't realize is like, if you read about sports psychology, which I'm super thrilled, your, your everyday life will affect your sports development. And, and one of the things that I've realized is that I get a lot of, uh, anxiety, particularly when I fence my, my students, uh, good friends uh because in open tournaments what would happen to me is that i would start beat a guy and they will get angry and then it will move not from fencing ah. it will turn into injury yeah right it will turn into i must yeah. hurt you this is unacceptable how dare you tiny woman you know be better than me or must punish um and yeah. that developed in psychological aspects so i was just speaking of wanting to perform i became unable to perform not from a physical perspective, but for a psychological perspective. And so the day I start having a coach being like, no, 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 he's going to be upset. You're going to, you know, it's on them, not on you. Or like, I know you're getting anxious. You're doing good. You have the right to win. You have the right to take space. And like having that, like, to me, it's mostly emotional coaching. It's not tactical coaching what I need. 
Right. It became sure. it became key in my ability to become a better fencer and to be more confident in my tackling of every other aspect of fencing, from research to training to teaching to all of that. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that people do not realize the emotional impact that fencing has. And also, people don't understand how useful coaching is. Yes, because it's like it's 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 developing your skill. Your and again, it's the same thing. It can be martially speaking in terms of techniques and tactics. It can be in terms of strategy, which to me is fascinating. I love strategy, and it can be emotional, right? Like calm down. And honestly, in in a in the high pressure area of a, like a in the middle of a tournament bout, it's all emotional. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Because you've already done all the tactical stuff and the strategic stuff. If your coach is any good, you've already covered all of that stuff before the fight even starts. You've scoped out the opponent. You know how they fence. You know what they're likely to do. You have a plan. And the coach's job is basically to keep you in the right headspace so you can stick to the fucking plan. Yes. And, yeah. it, is, and it is funny because if you if you look at, 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 at history, like I think that's the whole point of and, – and, this is an argument for me against like real fight TM. Um, yeah. And which that's the whole point of a lot of the games that they had in the middle ages, right? Like yeah, sure. a lot of, a lot of tournaments and, and, and a lot of activities and, and fighting games that they had was particularly to be able to develop that mental skill of, of endurance and, and stay cool and make the right choices. Um, yeah. They would, they would have, they were basically cultivating prowess. Yes. And so now we just do it in a, I would allegedly call it, maybe healthier or more sustainable matter, which is coaching. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. But yeah, I, I I do think that it's something that is not very, it's not a big thing right now in HEMA. And I also think that there's a lot of people who are coaching who do not understand what coaching is. Well, that's for certainly true. And I don't mean in a root, like it's, it's not, it's not to be like, oh, you're don't know anything. It's just, it's just, it's just facts. Um, Almost everyone that you see that that coach their students are people that come from other martial arts that lead to a competitive, certain level of competitiveness. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's just, you know, how things are at the moment. Okay. So your ideal tournament would have what exactly? My ideal tournament will have... Um, Wait, in which aspect? Because I can go, I can go around. So that's up to you. First of all, my ideal tournament will have a nice balance between men, women non-binary people, trans people, and be like an incredibly inclusive environment. That's my first yeah. goal, right? Where everyone yeah, can go and they goal. can go swords uh, safely. Safety is also like a huge one, right? I want to go to a tournament in which I can compete to my maximum athletic ability without worrying that I'm going to get injured. I want to be yeah, able to yeah. do this in the long run, so I don't want to end up like with a super high-end degree concussion that is going to like hmm. potentially give me like permanent brain damage or broken fingers that are going to affect my ability to do my day job or, you know, a popped up bruise or a shoulder injury that is going to take me for years. Um, So a place where you can be both really competitive but remain safe is a huge one for me. Uh, Where you can get a lot of fights, because that's what I do at the end of the day, I want to go to fight. So even if I'm not the best, I want to make sure that my fencer has as many bouts as they can so they can have as much fun and as much learning as they could. Um, that's, that's, by the way, my main criticism of tournaments generally. Like, I mean, my most of my tournament experience was in sport fencing in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, you'd be on the coach for three hours or whatever, and then you would be 
at the event for eight hours. And in those eight hours, depending on how well you did, you might get a dozen fights. Yeah. And then you're on the coach for three hours home again. It's like, that's, that's just not good. You know, I want, if I'm going to spend the entire day, get up early, travel all morning, spend all day fencing, I want to be getting in dozens and dozens and dozens of fights. Yeah. And so on that note, um, which is something well, that in my event we have we have to figure out how to solve it, it's like make sure that there's a space to continue to fight once you're done with your fighting. You know, like yeah, good idea. free fencing, yep. like, like oh, well, you know, I, I, I'm not that good of a, of, of a, like, I didn't do that great. I got eliminated after the first round of Elims, but now I can go to this area and just pick up fights with whoever wants to fence me and, and just yep. learn from people and have, like, a space that allows for, again, community building, um, social, like, personal growth, social development, and just sort of, like, networking type of situation. Um, okay. And an overall environment of respect um something that i'm really sick and tired is the fact that tournaments that are not the largest one do not get any praise uh particularly like in in women's or in our case we changed the name to underrepresented genders because it's not just for women um sure. you know there's this criticism of like oh well the 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 opens is these many people so let's ignore the fact that someone achieved a medal in anything else like let's okay. like so an environment where every single tournament is valued as an achievement and an event in which even if you're not the top number one your your achievements are valued as important so you're top 16 that's still really hard so yeah. like give it credit your top eight that is super hard give it credit um that's kind of like the environment that i look for in a tournament and that i would like to strive for is somewhere where you are recognized, somewhere where you are fulfilled, and somewhere where you are safe and able to try the things that you want to try in a healthy, non-injury manner. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I would show up to a tournament like that. Yeah, I think that's 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 my that's my utopia. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Now, um, am I right in thinking that you are an artist? Uh, you are correct. I am an artist. Is that your day job? No, um, it was when I was unemployed in the pandemic, but no, that is just the hobby that I've had my entire life. Okay. Um, so, but you, you, you create reproductions, illustrations, digital, res- digital restoration of fencing manuals, things like that, yes. correct? Okay. Tell us about that. Um, it's all a matter of accident. Uh, I do art as a hobby. I am, I am primarily, um, this is a terrible words. This is like telling a HEMA person that you're a sport fencer. I am self-thought. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um... And uh, I started dabbing in graphic design as a hobby, and eventually my little knowledge of graphic design became my way to sponsor my HEMA stuff. Um, because by okay. giving you very, way. very cheap Mexican prices, I can get a lot of dollars. Okay. Um, so I started doing a lot of, of digital work for HEMA, particularly Purple Heart. I did a lot of graphic design for Purple Heart for many, oh, many did years. You? Yeah. Um, huh. I would do like graphics for them and then I start doing logos. There's a lot of logos in Mexico and in the US that were designed by me. Um, really? Oh, we should talk. Okay. For for a while for a while I had honestly I had a um, a monopoly of, of graphic design in Hima. There <laughs> there was a time period in which I was like that is mine. That is mine. That is mine. That is mine. Actually, um, I don't know if you're familiar because you're you're familiar with Lower Baltimore. So I don't know if you're familiar with Autumn Effect. Um, I'm not, no. Oh, 
let me try to, well, I don't know if there's any, any that, that I have in mind, but like, I've, I just did a lot of graphic design for a lot of people. And then out of fun, I started, um, I was like, can I grab a illustration from a manual? And can I try to, re- can I recreate it as close as possible? And so oh, interesting. I did that for a while. And honestly, I stopped after some very sad experiences when I tried to sell them and I realized what I did to myself. Um, but How? What? So What's wrong with that? I did a, what was it? Um, trying to remember if he was a color tracking mayor. Mm-hmm. Took me six months to do. Sometimes yeah. I will spend weeks matching the color, right? Because you, you need to get the color exactly right. And then yeah. um, one thing is when an artist makes a mistake. And the other thing is to paint a mistake in an illustration. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard. Um, so I will spend like six months doing that piece of art. And then I was like, oh, this is going to you know give me bank. And I will sell it for like $200. <laughs> and by the time I realized what I had done... You know, I did that with several pieces, and I and I regretted. You can you can live on you can live on four hundred dollars a year, can't you? I I regretted it. I continue to regret it. Um, but the last the the the, the straw that, that broke the camel's back is I hand brushed a large scale Nikolai Petter plate, which is mm-hmm. the a beautiful beautiful uh wrestling manual, and we ran a tournament in Mexico, and I gave the painting as a first price and the guy looked at it and said like cool and rolled it uh. later on it got lost and that uh. was and that was and that was the last one that I did ow it is the last recreation Ouch. that I've ever done I have not been able to master the uh <laughs> The emotional, <laughs> the emotional injury that that caused was 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 strong. Uh, I still have a couple home. I have a, I have a one thirty three. I have another. Which plate from one thirty three? I don't remember. I'll I'll can show it to you. Um, okay. I have a one that I took from like I literally just went to into Wicked Hour and I just randomly start clicking and I picked okay. one for like um, a horse fighting that I still have. Um, I tried to do a Fiorian, but then I realized that that Fiorian's artistry is too um, too wild and free 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 handed for me to want to dive into that again. Um, okay. I've done oh, I one of my favorite ones that I sent to Franz. It was I did this gorgeous armor plate um, from uh, Paul Sector Mayer. Oh, okay. It took me, and I, I do them with the watercolor, so that's also kind of hard because sometimes the paintings are made with gouache or something else, and I need yeah. to be able to resemble the texture. Um, and with watercolors, you don't get any take backs. It's got to be right first yes, time. Yes, it has to be right first time. Um, I've worked a lot with with Chinister. He's been really kind to me, and and he's I, I honestly I'm very thankful for him because it's it's allowed me to see to source this in a different way. Um, he hired me to do like a educated reconstruction of the broken pieces from uh, the one thirty three. So if you oh, really? if you go to Wigton Hour and you see the pages where there's damage, yep. you will see like a hand drawn lines. Those are mine, and some things are just lines. There were others that were a little bit trickier, um, mm-hmm. and it looks pretty simple. But it takes a lot of 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 let me understand the style yeah. of the artist so I can so I can do this. Um, and then I've done other graphic design, so he he's publishing these these beautiful 
uh, books. And so, for example, all the digital work that went so the Fury had gold plated. I think those. Um, oh really? I have that in my house. Yes. So I I spent hours, painful, painful, painstaking, <laughs> mental health taking hours, uh, hand selecting the sections that had gold, <laughs> so you could have that 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 beauty with gold plates in, well, in your well, hands. Well, I for one, I for one appreciate it. <laughs> and when that book arrived, I was like like holding it up to the light and angling it so the gold would shine and I was squeeing like an infant. And and so. honestly though, cheers to, to 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 Mike because he he would be like, Is it ready yet? And I'm like, I'll get it to you in, in, in like two weeks. Is it ready yet? Like give me two more weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Is it ready yet? Maybe give it two months. Um so I work with that one. I I did something else for another one that he needed. I cleaned up some of the mayor plates and like isolated all the all the fencers for a project that he has. I actually realized, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about that. Um, well, so nobody listens to the show anyway, so you're fine. <laughs> no, don't say that. Uh, so yeah, I, I have I have dabbled a lot into into illustration. Uh, that is, that is, I honestly, I think my, my, my quote unquote scholar side in HEMA is not so much toward the text as it is for the art. Okay, that's like one of my favorite things in the whole world. Yeah, I I'm always jealous of people who can draw. I cannot draw for shit. <laughs> I can doodle, <laughs> uh, but and, and my notes right now. Um, I'll just just flip my camera back on so you can see them. I mean, because I you know, I I can doodle. <laughs> hey, those are good. <laughs> but that's that's pretty that's pretty much all I can do. <laughs> Um, all right, so so you you do lots of things and you have done lots of things. What is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? I've okay, so I have it written down and I have all the um, how it's supposed to run. I just every time I try, it just doesn't work. I've always wanted to do a HEMA scholarship. Okay. So like what? So it essentially works in in, in different ways. Uh, there's there's three types of scholarships. The first one is where you bring a fencer to an event or to, you know, to somewhere else to be able to practice. Mm -hmm. uh, these came from the fact that, you know, for me, going to the U.S. was incredibly hard. And there's people in Mexico who just will never be able to have that opportunity. Because if the visa gets sure. denied, good luck. Yeah. There's nothing yeah, you can yeah, do exactly. about it. Um, so the first step of, 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 uh, of scholarship is bringing a fencer to an event. Um, the second type of scholarship is bringing an instructor to a club, right? Yep. So you as a whole club... Uh, or as a local place, you, you get sponsored. And so essentially the scholarship pays the instructor to go there and train with you for an intensive week or two uh, yeah. and provide you with it, all that stuff. Um, and then the other scholarship is essentially gear, which is also hard to get, right? Sort of like uh, provide equipment. Um, that last one I've been changing my mind about, but the idea is to... Why so? Because I've... <laughs> Once upon a time, my club had a had a scholarship, and I gave a sword to a guy, and then he gave it to his girlfriend. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, like, and I was like, maybe, maybe here is not is not not the best one, but but you know, like, I, I think like a scholarship that allows people to have knowledge um, is good. So basically, my goal with that is to try to close in the the gap of knowledge that it's that it's out there, right? Um, yeah. And sort of like have a functional way to bring people who are limited by either their geographic area and and their economy because you know yeah 
Honestly, I've been I've been working on the exact same thing myself. Um, I have a subscription program for my online courses, and it has been very, very, very slow to actually pick up. But once I get it to a certain point, there'll be enough money there that I can offer free seminars. You know, where I I can cover the flights and my time and all that sort of stuff. So free seminars to places that simply can't afford to hire me or somebody like yeah and the idea is to have accessibility and have just again exactly shared of knowledge but also it's it's one of those things that i think that it will allow for for the international community to be more connected and and again move move away from the scope of of the u.s and europe and start including conversation with with other countries that are well deserving of attention right yeah, I mean, there's there's a thriving historical martial arts scene in Indonesia, for example. I've had two people from Indonesia on the show already. Yeah, and like uh, China has a lot of work going on. Yeah. Uh, I'm again, I'm mostly familiar with with South America, but I I think there's even something in something was saying something about South Africa, and I was like, there there's been stuff going on in South Africa for years and years and years, and I've tried to get in touch with the people there, but because um, I want to get somebody from South Africa on the show, so if anyone from South Africa who does historical martial arts is listening, get in touch because I would like to have South Africa represented on the show. But yeah, it's, it's, they, they seem, they seem not to interact much with the wider world or they're doing it on platforms where I don't go. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's the one, the one thing that I wish I could, I could get done as a scholarship. Okay. So is that also the, what you would do with a million dollars? Pretty much. Yes. <laughs> okay, so you conflated my two final questions, which I ask all of my guests into into one. Well, I would take your million dollars, and I would I would create a scholarship program. Absolutely, yes. So, yeah, one one difficulty I've been thinking of with my own notion of a scholarship program is, of course, it's really important that it doesn't become a popularity contest, right? There has to be some kind of objective uh, selection process so that the people who deserve it get it oh i had all that sorted out um the way that i was and 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 if you want to run it because i can't please take it so the way that i was going to do it is i essentially was going to have a board for the decision making and by having a board of people it's it's sort of like a collegiate sort of decision there was an people are going to hate me for this there was there's an application process right um there is application by self kind of like asking for yourself to be there but then there's another section of scholarship in which is like you don't propose yourself you propose someone else okay um and so like that it's that helps because it's sort of like people thinking that you're deserving of um i also planned it that way to prevent people who think like i don't i'm i'm not good enough um oh yeah there's that yeah um and so there there's several aspects in which like you have to fulfill certain questionnaires obviously if you get the questionnaire wrong um for terms of simplifying things, you will have to try again next time. Um, but but there will be like a whole application format, and then it turns it, it moves into a contest. Um, and uh, and ideally, by changing the board and having different people, uh, you will prevent the popularity thing to happen. Yeah, yeah, it's it is tricky, and I think it's selecting the board is the tricky bit. Well, getting the money is the really tricky bit, but once you've got the money, I think get, getting the board right. Well, ideally, there that's a nice thing when you go to with an international in an international situation because you know you just you just gather people from up many different corners of the world as you can, and they all will have different perceptions and notions of of mm-hmm. life. 
Um, yep. So any bias, I think, will be different. And that, that in itself, I think it would be helpful. Hmm. Um, another thing is like to make sure that, um, you know, local quote-unquote authorities are sort of like involved in the process, but not give them the full-on weight of authority. Yeah. So like if I'm going to do a scholarship that is going to go to Chile, like have Tomás in the board, but not be Tomás be the only one in the board, right? In case... Yeah. By the way, also, Tomas is a friend, so I'm taking this like he wants to say about If Tomas is a horrible human being, he's like, oh, I'm just going to give it to my friend. <laughs> all the other board members are going to be like, no, that's that's not going to happen, right? Yeah. yeah. And of course, it couldn't go to Tomas's own group. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of how I had it, how I had it planned and set up. Mm. And then okay. the other thing that I also had is that you could submit to be an instructor to that program. Because that's the other thing where you can go yeah. popular contest, right? It's like, oh, I'm just going to send my, my friends to these exotic trips to, like, go to Brazil, go to Peru, go to Japan. Like, what a wonderful yeah. time. I'm, I'm just giving, uh, you know, free time to my friends. So I was going to also have a program for, like, submitting instructors. Uh, okay. And sort of, like, want to teach what you want to teach, what can you teach, and, and make sure that people get what they're asking for, right? Because... Say, yeah, yeah. if 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 they want to have an instructor that comes over but also helps them organize, I don't know, um, armor combat, I'm not your person. I don't do armor, right? right? Um, yeah. So, kind of like that was that was part of my, my idea. Hmm. Yeah, it's, and it's a good idea to have it so that people can submit other instruct or other instructors can sort of volunteer to go. Yeah. It's, it was so developed yeah. that I even have my logo already done. And it was, really? and it, yeah, and it was, and it was, uh, it was, it was, it was, it might, if it ever happened, it was going to be the, uh, the Walpurgis scholarship. Really? Oh, that's a bloody good name. Yep, yep. Okay. Will you, will you send us the logo so I can put it in the show notes? Yes, I will. <laughs> Please. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a delight getting to actually properly talk to you, which we didn't get to do at Lord Baltimore's event. I know. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mariana. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Stephen Hand, who is one of the old guard, if you like, of historical martial arts. I've known Stephen since, I guess, 2003, something like that, getting on 20 years now. And he is one of the founders of historical martial arts in Australia. And we get into depth and detail about Silver, Swetnam and Saviolo, as well as the books that he's written and the bad old days of historical martial arts. So you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>